This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. There are many fictional accounts of madness. In The Madness of King George, George III behaves in ways believed to be erratic and violent. He is subjected to a range of harsh treatments, all while a power struggle takes place in the background. The king's bout of madness set off the Regency crisis in 1788. In Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, Bertha Mason is similarly a mad character. Her madness becomes frightening to behold. Her laughter is demonic, and she is described as crawling on all fours, snarling, and behaving in a bestial manner. But accounts of madness go beyond the fictional realm and have real implications for real people. Today, we discuss madness as performance. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello, and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joita Gupta. It's really good to be with you today, and we've got a really exciting and interesting topic to cover today, so I'm going to dive right into it. Kira Smith is a doctoral student, public historian, and creative writer with an interest in mad studies. Kira is the author of Ritualizing Madness, Case Files as Sites of Enforced Performativity, 1894 to 1950 which is a scholarly article published recently in the Canadian Journal of Disability Studies. Kira joins us today from Ottawa. Hello and welcome to the program. It's so good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Kira, for those of us who don't know the definition, what exactly is MAD Studies? Yeah, so that is a big topic to sort of condense into a couple of sentences, but MAD studies, in my perspective, looks at uh, experiences and institutions and practices that have influenced the lives of people labeled with various mental illnesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, MAD studies at its core is run by and in cooperation with MAD people. Um, and that to me is sort of its fundamental important key part to MAD studies is that in many ways it's also an activist endeavor as much as it is an academic endeavor to understand madness across time. Now in your paper you open out but you open up by writing that one is not born mad rather they become mad that's a very provocative statement uh, what were you trying to communicate with that? Yeah, so with that, I was sort of challenged. There's a couple of things I'm trying to do in that article, and one of them is challenge the idea that madness is something unique or something that's worth othering. And I posit that instead it's something rather ordinary or benign to human experience. So that's kind of the first element. The second Mm -hmm. element to it is that there's an aspect of madness in the way that it is written about and understood that's less about 
the person who's experiencing the madness and more about how people perceive that person. It's a really interesting sort of look at madness because a lot of people think of madness as being something that is genetic, that is inborn, um, and that is something that is a, a personal characteristic. But in your in your paper, you actually talk about madness being a cultural performance, uh, and by which I, I I mean to be clear, you're not talking about entertainment. What exactly are you trying to communicate with that sentiment? So what I'm trying to say there is that. With cultural performances and madness, there are certain behaviors or ways of appearing in the world that become prescribed to a definition of madness. So that action doesn't necessarily have to deal with any person specifically, but it can be reproduced among different people in order to say that they are mad. Like, for example, you know, in the monologue, I talked about George III and I talked about uh, Bertha Mason, both his, you know, historical figures, fictional characters. But this idea that, you know, if you're if one is mad or insane, then you're essentially violent. So, you know, those perceptions take on a life of their own outside of the individual. Let's talk a little bit more about your research, uh, which centers on the Brockville Asylum. A lot of people may not have heard of it. So what can you tell us about it? Um how long was or is has it been open? And uh, what were you trying to do in your study of the Brockville Asylum? So the Brockville Asylum opened in 1894 um, in Brockville, Ontario, as a response to growing populations in other asylums in Ontario, such as the Toronto Insane Asylum um, and another one in Kingston, And it operated until 1994 when it was closed. And it still operates some mental health um, as a mental health facility in some capacity currently, but not not under the same, I guess, organization. Um, Mm -hmm. With my research, what I was trying to do was go in and look at case files of people who were admitted into the asylum. And instead of writing about what the routine was like, how people might have been admitted, what were those medical diagnoses. I was trying to capture what it might have been like to live in that facility. And so through my research, I wrote a novella entitled The Red Chair that follows one woman who was in and out of that asylum for 20 years over the, from about 1900 to 1950. And through her experiences there, we meet other people who experience that asylum in different ways. Mm -hmm. That's a novella that you wrote, but just to turn back to the patient files, how present would you say the voices of uh, the patients would have actually been in the files? Or was it more of doctors and nurses writing about the patients? Yeah, so this is a huge challenge with doing historical MAD studies is these records I'm looking at are written by doctors, attendants, nurses. There's no documents from anyone from the Brockville Asylum. Hmm. In some other asylums, you might get letters from patients, um, but in the Brockville Asylum, that doesn't exist at all. What you do see eventually is in the 30s, 
doctors and nurses start recording quotes from the patients, like things that they said verbatim. Mm -hmm. That's when you start to see a little bit more of the patient voice, but it's also important to be a little bit skeptical of those quotes because normally they're in the case mm -hmm. file to prove that person's madness. Mm -hmm. And in trying to prove someone's madness, what are some of the ways in which doctors and nurses might have gone about trying to do that? And how do you pick up on some of the maybe, let's call them the trends uh, that you might have seen in the case files? Yeah, so there, there are a lot of different ways that madness you see kind of repeated across different case files. So one way you might see that is gendered behavior. So if you're a woman being admitted into the asylum, you can see a lot more discussion on sexuality, um, sort of policing of sexual behaviors, or thinking that they're doing work that's outside of their gender expectation to, mm -hmm. as an example of their insanity. You also see things that are related to how one looks. So if you're if you have a particular stare, that's supposed to invoke some idea of madness. Mm -hmm. um, and it goes beyond stare. They'll talk about, you know, a sadness in your eyes, or uh, they'll comment on other aspects of your body. If your nose is oversized or your ears are a little bit large. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another common one that comes up. And then the other thing is behaviors. So if you're, you know, violence, as already mentioned, comes up a lot, um, especially for men. And then behaviors like erratic and grand behavior is what they use for someone who's a bit more boisterous. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about some of the things that you found in these case files. But what you try to do is bring in a couple of theorists to help us better understand uh, how to decode or make sense of or to critically read some of these files. And one of the, the theorists that you bring up is, of course, Foucault. Um, for those of us who are not social science students or uh, philosophy students, what does Foucault have to say about the asylum as a site for discipline and as, as, as a place for surveillance of human behavior? Yeah, so Foucault, Foucault gets evoked a lot in studies of institutions because you can sort of first approach the asylum as understanding what he calls a panopticon. And this is based mm -hmm. off of a particular architectural plan of a prison where you can see every part of it and survey what's going on and control what's going on. So the asylum in this case is the panopticon. And within that space, doctors, nurses, attendants can see the patients, they formulate knowledge, mm -hmm. and they enact treatments. And so this specialized knowledge sort of gives them the right, if you will, to institutionalize people and then treat them in the way that they do. Mm -hmm. And so Foucault gives you the language, uh, as an academic at least, to talk about the way that that knowledge and those actions manifest as, as power and how that power is being exerted on people within the asylum. 
Mm-hmm. But again, one of the, and I'm not a theorist by any chance, but again, aren't we sort of glossing over the individual experiences um, and the, the ways in which any one person might experience the institution differently from another person? Do you feel that that might, dare I say it, a possible <laughs> shortcoming for Foucault? Oh, yeah, that's uh, absolutely a a shortcoming for Foucault. There are problems with the fact that, like, if you read his theories, they don't always account for individual agency and action. And we know individual agency and action exists. And, you know, that ties Mm -hmm. into the personal experiences. So, well, in this context of the article, I like Foucault to be able to examine those wider trends that article doesn't tell us a lot about patient experiences explicitly because of the Mm -hmm. framework I'm using. The other analytic tool or framework that you lean on is performance theory. So tell us a little bit about how performance theory comes into play in your article. Yeah, so performance theory, I was introduced to a couple of years ago, and I really liked it for understanding how behaviors are codified among sort of normalized expectations of people. And, you know, I was first introduced through that with Judith Butler and, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of gender norms and expectations. And so with the asylums, the way I like to use the performance theory is think about how actions themselves don't necessarily always speak to individual experiences as much as they speak to cultural behaviors. Um, Mm -hmm. And those cultural behaviors or performances exist outside of the individuals who might at one point embody and perform them in their actions. I'm speaking today to Kira Smith, who is a PhD student and is doing her very first interview with us about her paper dealing with madness and performance theory. Kira, you know, and not to put you on the spot, but I've just been thinking about the people who wrote the case files, the doctors mm-hmm. and the nurses. If they're listening to this conversation, how do they write their case files differently? Or is it is it a bigger conversation that we need to have? Maybe it's not about consulting more with patients. Maybe we need to be thinking about the institution uh, of the asylum or the psychiatric facility itself. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so... I think for me personally, I would come at this as it's a bigger conversation. There are scholars particularly um, who have discussed how you can write case file notes in deconstructive ways that where the person you're writing about is more involved in that process. I'm not very familiar with that literature. So For me, where I come at this is about how we talk about madness and how we let people talk about their own madness. Because case files fundamentally are not about how I might experience madness or how someone else might experience madness. It's somebody else's interpretation of my madness. And madness is very personal. So I think stepping back from the case files, it's about reframing how we think about mental illness. 
Do you think there's a conversation to be had as well about how we reframe society? Because one of the arguments that's been made about in, in opposition to institutions of any kind for any sort of disability is that what it does is it essentially warehouses people with disabilities. And so if they're out of sight, they're out of mind. And ergo, what's left in society is society is able-bodied, society is sane. Do you think that as a society, what we really need to do is revisit our expectations of uh, what we consider normal or what we can set, consider acceptable behavior. Yeah, I think that's that's the core at all of it for me is changing that framework of what we think is normal and acceptable. You know, it goes back to my original sort of one of the main points I want to make is that, you know, madness is really not all that unusual mm. in so far that lots of people experience it. And it's not something that necessarily or should be othered through medical and psychiatric processes. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. And one of the things that I've been reading a lot about is the spike in mental health issues. Uh, depression is on the rise. Anxiety is on the rise. Do you think that there's a, a moment here, there's an opportunity maybe? I hesitate to say in the middle of a global pandemic that there's anything positive coming out of this. But if there's this greater uh, receptiveness of or a greater visibility of mental health concerns. Is this a moment where we uh, where we take the opportunity to to shift the cha- the conversation or change the channel on the conversation about mental health because it is so much in every to the forefront of everyone's minds that we're all in this together and we're all suffering. I think it's a particular conversation that might shift or happen. But the problem is, is when we're thinking about this mental health crisis, if you will, coming out of COVID, is who are the people that we're talking to, that we're listening to, what sort of mad experiences are they talking about? And I say this because a lot of my peers and friends who have been institutionalized um, in modern facilities against their will are often silenced and not listened Mm -hmm. to. Whereas if I'm a more privileged person, someone might be more willing to hear about my experiences of depression because they've been handled in a more acceptable format. So I think there is room for discussion, but I'm, I'm cautious of really how radical that's going to be because I don't think it is. Previously in our conversation, you talked about your novella, The Red Chair, where you talk about the experience of one inmate and you use that one inmate story to look at uh, the experiences of others in the ward. Uh, uh, Tell me a little bit more about how you think people who are labeled, and I will go so far as to say stigmatized as living with a mental illness, how do they reclaim their voice and how do they take back and take up some of that space uh, so that they can shift the discourse? Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally, this is what MAD Studies is about. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. about taking up some of that space. It's about making space for survivors and consumers of psychiatric services. Um, And that, you know, you're seeing community initiatives to gather oral histories um, to preserve their, their material cultures. And so that kind of coming together as a community I think is what's going to be helpful in terms of the long term and being able to say, we're here, we have a voice, we've gathered collectively, you can't ignore us anymore. 
Do you think part of that is also recognizing that there has been historically a shared oppression and a shared sense of discrimination? Uh, because uh, people with mental health illnesses have taken the brunt of a disability discrimination in some ways. I think, you know, as someone who's blind, I don't think I've, I, I don't think that label sticks in quite the same way as, a, as someone who might be dealing with anxiety or depression or a range of other mental illnesses, quote unquote. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, you know, people who are labeled with mental illness, how they experience oppression could connect um, many and could not connect many. I, I think, for example, I know several people, as I said, who have been forcefully institutionalized for their madness, and I myself have never been forcefully institutionalized. And so while mm -hmm. I can be compassionate and I can listen and support, there is an oppression that I will personally have never experienced, even though we could have the same diagnostic label. But there are collective oppressions on the other hand, where how, you know, sexism, racism, ableism, how those might also affect your experiences with mental mm -hmm. illness and connect, connect you to others. Mm -hmm. Well, Kira, thank you very much for joining us today. It was a lot of fun getting to know you and I hope your first interview lived up <laughs> to expectations. It was good to have you on the program. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. That was Kira Smith, who is a public historian, PhD candidate, and creative writer with an interest in mad studies. Her article, Ritualizing Madness, Case Files as Sites of Enforced Performativity, 1894 to 1950, was recently published in the Canadian Journal for Disability Studies, which, for those of you who haven't read it, is available online. It is free of charge, and it's a really interesting repository of up-and-coming Canadian academics and scholars talking about disability studies. If you missed my conversation with Kira, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. Also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Kira Smith for being my guest on the program today. Nasreen Abdul-Majid is our technical producer. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio and Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.